Okay, the plan of the day is that we will wrap up our examination of the doctrine of unconditional election. <clears throat> we have two more. Well, this Sunday and next Sunday, really, there'll be the end of our um, our Sunday school hour, uh, and then we'll break for summer and the men's communion um, meditations. So, it's it's my hope that um, we we finish in the next two weeks everything that um, I have to offer on the doctrine of unconditional election, and then when we pick this series up again, we'll be moving on to the next doctrine of unconditional election, which is unlimited atonement. So to begin, um, today we're going to be talking about the benefits of this doctrine of unconditional election. And if you will, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading verses 16 through 17. And follow along with me, if you will. It'll be a good jumping off point for us here. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And Paul writes to the young pastor, Timothy, All scripture is breathed out by God. So, Paul's saying that all scripture is inspired. That's where we, you know, like, like inspiration comes from breathing, right? It's all breathed out by God. And profitable, profitable for teaching. Okay, profitable um, basically means it's useful, it's beneficial, right? We, we profit from it, we gain from it. Just like if you're running a business, you want to make a profit, you want to gain from uh, your business activities. So all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that's a well-known verse. Undoubtedly, you've read it, you've heard it before. It encompasses all of the Bible, does it not? Paul, at the time he's writing, you know, primarily they're speaking of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we may call the Old Testament. Well, in fact, the New Testament is really Hebrew Scriptures, written by people, by men that were um, Hebrew, at least, you know, at least part Jewish. There may have been um, uh, half Jewish, half Gentile writing a gospel. But here's the thing about this: this what I'm getting at here with this, the the benefits of the doctrine of unconditional election, is. There are many people that believe this doctrine is useless. There's, there's, there's no point in it. Or perhaps it's even harmful. So this is why we want to discuss some of the, the benefits of this doctrine. So we want to counter this argument. And if the doctrine of unconditional election is found in Scripture, and I think you must agree from what we've examined going through this series of lectures, we've discovered that unconditional election is most certainly found in God's Word. That it, it, it may be ignored by some, but it's there. And if it's there, if it's in the Bible's inspired teaching, therefore it must be useful or profitable, as Paul insists, right? Otherwise, 
we've got error going on here. So why is it beneficial? We're going to look at a few things that I think I've discovered in my studies as to why it is beneficial. Now, the first one, and I think it's good to start off with this, is number one, because I think this would be surprising to many people, outside of the Reformed faith at least, is that unconditional election is humbling. Now, that, I think, would run counter to the popular conception of of Calvinistic doctrine. Many people outside of Reformed churches think of Calvinists, Reformed Christians, as being very prideful. Why is that? Well, primarily, it's because of this idea that there's an elect and there are those that are passed over. There aren't elect. And we consider faithful believers, Christians, if you will, to be elect, which if we consider ourselves Christians, that puts us in the elect group. Although we've not said, if you notice during the series of lectures, we've never said that only people in Reformed churches are elect. So we're not excluding our brethren in the Armenian churches. Not at all. And that's not the point of what we're getting at. So, without a proper understanding of election, we, people do think it is the opposite of, of humbling. It is a prideful doctrine. Because God tells us that he's chosen some by grace entirely apart from merit or even their ability to receive grace. Precisely so that pride would be eliminated. And we're going to turn to a very uh, other, another very well-known uh, passage of Scripture, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. A very important passage that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesus 2, 8 and 9, Paul writes, For by grace, it's a Greek word, charis here, which means basically... Uh, in Paul's writing, it's undeserved favor or merit from God, and Paul seems to reserve it um, frequently for the idea of salvation, salvation by, by, uh, uh, by Christ, um, is uh, an act of grace by God. And in the Old Testament, this, the same idea of grace is connected to that word hesed, which I think I've mentioned a couple of times, one of my favorite words out of the Old Testament, which means um, loving, steadfast, loyal kindness. That's how God views his people. So grace is like hesed. It's a steadfast love. So this, it's by this characteristic of God, it's part of God's characteristic that's being described and, and God, by doing this, he's acting in his own character. And, of course, think about it. God cannot act contrary to his own character, can he? He has to be God at all times. God never acts ungodlike. So, if I, for, by, excuse me, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Grace connects to gift. You don't earn disgrace. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. See how here Paul's removing the element of pride from unconditional election? That we cannot boast about the election that God has chosen us for. It's purely God's work. And it's important to remember, and I think this is where a lot of our Arminian brethren kind of get a little bit off track and maybe away from Scripture, the idea that this, um, this grace that we're given is based on God's foreknowledge, his foreseeing how we are going to react to the presentation of the gospel. Which, is that not a work? If, if we are listening to the gospel being presented and we make a decision entirely on our own that this, is, this sounds like a good deal, this is something that I think I will benefit from and I need to work towards obtaining this salvation. I need to do what this preacher is saying to receive this gift from God. Then it's a, it's a, it's a work. And, and I think too many people add too much stuff on this idea of work. They, they try and turn it more into uh, Roman Catholic theology, if you will, Roman Catholic doctrine, where, there's, where there are, um, you know, where you have to express penance, where you have to go to a, uh, you have to go to confession with the priest, that you have to receive um, the Eucharist, that so you have to attend Mass and receive this, this wafer that's been blessed by the priest and, been tur- and, and has been turned into the body of Christ through the power of this human being, this priest at the front of the church. Well, certainly, that's, that's, a, that's, that's works religion right there. Um, maybe more to the extreme than what we like to think of in Protestant circles. But we Protestants, in the broad umbrella of Protestantism, can and often do include our own type of works outside of Reformed theology. And many don't realize that. So moving on, what else does election do besides humbling? I would say election encourages our love for God. Another point, I think, which is, which is very striking. When I think about this personally, and I'm sure many of you feel the same way, that God's grace and God's mercy generates this love within his people because we are recipients of this divine mercy that we do not work for. We have done nothing to deserve it. It's not like, you know, when you're a kid and you labor all day Saturday cutting the grass and pulling weeds and raking and doing everything mom and dad tell you to do, and you get an allowance. You've, you've worked for that. That's not how our Heavenly Father 
works. There's nothing we need to do to get this. And since we have a part in salvation due to God's grace alone, um, then our love is not diminished. Maybe a better way to put it is that if, let's take it looking at it the other way, if we were to have a part in the election, if we did something, maybe God does 99% of it and we were to do 1%, then I suggest our love for God would be diminished by that amount because we've contributed to that, right? It's like my example of doing chores around the house as a kid, which is a, which is a, a good thing for kids to do. Um, but as a child, when you're doing that, did you feel an overwhelming love for your parents because they're giving you this gift? No, you, you earned it, didn't you? And maybe if you're like me, you were thinking, wow, that's hardly worth it. <laughs> 50 cents, yeah, I'm going to buy a couple comic books and a soda pop. So you, I hope you see my point. Right, that that um, that our love for God is not diminished by our contributions. What that means, and what I'm trying to drive at here, is if salvation is all of God, then our love for Him, and certainly we in this we will also see His love for us, must be. Boundless. There can be no boundary to it. Now, from a human standpoint, that's very difficult to imagine. But I think it's easier when we realize that there that there's a reciprocal thing going on. It's it's easier for me, at least, to think about God's love being boundless rather than my love being boundless. The problem with human love is there's always something in our sinful nature that can trip up our love, right? Someone, there's always, the person we love, there's always something that person can do that's going to maybe cause us to pull back. There's no pulling back with God, is there? Not because of the doctrine of unconditional election, because we're not contributing to it. God's not looking at us and saying, well, you know, well, if he hadn't have done that, I would have loved him more, but he did that, so I'm, I'm loving him less. Or I don't know, what's he going to do next? That's, you know, we're always ready to protect ourselves in love, aren't we? I don't know what that person's going to do. I don't want to get hurt. That's not a concern of God. So, I think a sad thing, when we think about the church today, and I'm talking about the modern era, the, the era that we've all experienced, no matter our age, that, that we've seen this, you know, even if we're just we're in our teens or even if we're, we're much, much older, I think that, that we could admit that we, that we see this going on. And when I talk about the church, please, again, understand that I mean church with a capital C, Church Universal. I'm not talking about our little fellowship here. Sadly, today, the church frequently takes the love of God for granted. 
And why is that? Well, we live in a very self-absorbed age, don't we? Our culture is, we, we're just focusing on self all the time. So I think what the, what the, what the prevalent view is of humans when they discuss God is that, well, of course God loves me. I love myself. I'm told to love myself. I've read books, you know, that tell me I should love myself, that I'm lovable. So why shouldn't God love me? Everybody should love me, right? And I've had discussions with Christians over this. They get trapped in this circle about with self-love. It's like, well, I, I knew one, one gentleman. <clears throat> I had a long relationship with him. Um, and he was in uh, many of my uh, Bible studies and men's groups. And his thinking was, he said it, he had like a, an enlightenment period. He had, he had an epiphany, if you will. He was thinking about this, and he realized, hey, God made me. If God made me, he loves me. Because God loves everything that he makes. Because everything I make, I love. So whatever God makes, he loves. And I would question him about this, and he found himself trapped. I wasn't trying to trap him. I was just trying to point out, you know, that there was a problem with his logic here. And he, it, it led him to express, and I, I honestly don't think he truly believed this, but it led him to have to express universalism. Because if God's made everything, there's nothing in our cosmos, right, that God has not made, then God must love everything, including the most wicked, despicable, evil people that have ever walked this planet. Well, yes, he, he would, this man finally admitted, yes, God must love them. And I think there's a trap there. And it flows from the self-absorbed viewpoint, because we tend to think culturally that we deserve God's love. And, and why do we think we deserve God's love? There's really no good reason. It's not because of our actions, right? It's just what has been driven into our thinking. And it's a lie, right? And I think it's a way people get led astray. And it's how we end up with false professors in the church, that is, people who profess the Christian faith but are not really of the Christian faith. That's why some can enter into a Christian church, answer an altar call after hearing a message preached, and, and, and they're told that, okay, you are now part of the family, you are, you know, you've been saved, and da-da, it's all, all has been accomplished. And maybe they'll have a great deal of emotional um, enthusiasm for their faith for a period of time. But how many times do we see people like this? If you've been in such churches as I have, you see that enthusiasm wane and then fall by the wayside. And the next thing, that person isn't coming to church and you don't see them. And the next time you talk to them, you find out, well... You know, I don't know. I'm having a lot of doubts. I'm struggling with this. I got other things to do. And next thing, you know, perhaps this person is even rejecting Christ, 
well, I don't know. I've listened to this guy, Bart Ehrman, and he told me that, you know, this Bible just can't be trusted. You know, we don't even know if Jesus really existed. You know, the church made him up. It was Constantine at the Council of Nicaea, 325. He's, he's the one who made up the whole Bible. All of these lies that are told in, in, in our culture, all of these things you find on the Internet. You know, you turn on YouTube, and you get YouTube theology, and it's kind of maddening for, you know, your pastors and preachers to have to counter this, this barrage of false teaching that sounds so, so attractive to people, you know, um, and it's not good. It's not biblical. And it does lead people astray. So if we understand this doctrine that we are elected by grace alone, it completely undermines our self-centered, self-satisfied way of thinking. Because the Bible tells us there's nothing we can contribute to it. That our hearts are wicked. That our hearts are desperately sick. And only God can change our hearts. We're told that time and time again. It's a different way of thinking. It's counter-cultural. It goes against the stream. And this is something that's interesting. I'm sure that all of you have noticed this. That when we discover the truths of the Bible, of biblical Christianity, we find over and over again that it runs counter to what our culture and the cultures of past times, sinful human civilization, frankly, is what I'm talking about when I talk about culture, it runs counter to that. It's almost like a rule of thumb. With my culture saying, this is true, or this is what I should do, I'm probably going to find something different in the Bible. So there's an encouragement for our love of God because we realize what God has done. And the third thing, it will enrich our worship of God. Do you, do you see how this kind of like, there's like a waterfall effect? Like we have this first one, and it flows into the second one, and flows into this third one. This is what I find really marvelous about the doctrines of grace, is how they work like this, how they flow one into another, and how the principles and the truths we find inside each of these doctrines do the same thing. So election, how does, how does election, this doctrine of election, how does this enrich our worship? Well, think about this. <clears throat> Who can admire a God that is frustrated by the rebellious will of human beings? If we, through our human efforts, our sinful, rebellious human efforts, were able to prevent God from carrying out his plan his economy of history, let's say, his plan of what will transpire in time in, in everything that's included in that, if we're able to frustrate that, 
then how do we admire such a God? How can we even call such a being God? A being like that fits the gods of the pagan nations, the gods with the little g's, right? That are subject to recognition and um, uh, worship and sacrifice of their people. That when the people do not recognize these little gods, these little gods cease to exist, basically. So Martin Luther, he had a really good um, uh, idea that he expressed that that I want to take a look at. And I think it's helpful in understanding um, this third principle here. Martin Luther said this. He said, if I'm ignorant of God's works and power, then I am ignorant of God himself. We're going to build on that. So I need some room here. If we are ignorant of God's works and power, then we are ignorant we do not have knowledge let's say of God what Luther is saying If I am ignorant of God himself, if I do not know God, then I cannot worship him. I cannot praise him. I cannot even give thanks to him or, more importantly, I cannot serve him. A God like this that you're ignorant of, that you're you're completely distant from, that you maybe you have a vague idea that this God might exist, might be out there, then the things that make us true followers of God cannot occur. Now when you think about this, 
Doesn't this remind you of what Paul sees in Athens when he sees that monument to an unknown god and he speaks to the philosophers on Mars hills about this god they do not know? If you do not know a god, how do you worship that god? You don't even know what that god's characteristics are. How do you praise him? How do you know when that god's doing good or not? It's just then your own feelings, your own wants and needs being met, right? You can't give thanks to a God you don't know, and you certainly cannot serve him because you don't know what that God wants. Luther says that this is the case because if he does not know God, then he has no idea how much he should attribute to himself. And how much to this God? There's no understanding of where the line is divided between the creator and the creature. What's within our power and what is purely within the power of God if we are ignorant of him? So we have God, and we have ourselves. Luther says there must be a clear-cut division between these if we are to do the things that he's talking about. Worshiping, praising, giving thanks, serving. And we have to have in our mind a clear-cut distinction between this, between God's power and our power. We must have a clear-cut distinction between God's mind And our mind. If we don't, then where does this, where do you think this line would move? It would move this way, wouldn't it? If we didn't understand this distinction, then we would want to claim for ourselves power that belongs to God, right? Or things of God's mind will be things of our mind. Now, another reminder that I'm given of this, I think I've I've told, or most of you have heard me talk about growing up in the Christian Science Church as a boy. This, This is... These cultic, pseudo-Christian mind religions right here, they steal, they steal, they're thieves, they steal the things of God and they attribute them to ourselves, to fallen, sinful human beings. And the maddening thing and the thing that creates untold misery, havoc, and craziness, alcoholism, etc., etc., in religions like Christian science, is that you're taking the perfectness of God, 
moving it over here to the imperfect human being and then blaming the fallen sinful human being for not having the power and mind of God. That's why there were so many drunks in my family. You could not ever do enough. You could not ever be good enough. And when things weren't good, you just kept your mouth shut. We were great at keeping secrets. I'm surprised that the CIA isn't made up of Christian scientists because they just keep their mouth shut about all the bad stuff that they know had never occurred. You would never be broken by a communist interrogator as a Christian scientist because you've been raised as a child to accept lies as real. But, you know, we're talking about basically a dead religion in the 21st century one that was one of the, the, the biggest growing religions in the early 20th centuries. In a hundred years, the lies have been revealed that that church is dying. But that church did not come up with anything new. That's the craziness. This is the same stuff that gets recycled over and over again. And this pseudo-Christianity borrowed heavily from Eastern religions such as Hinduism. How long has Hinduism been around? A long, long time. And I suggest there'll be something else that'll come along that'll pick up these, these false and harmful precepts and apply them again to a new religion. But if we do this properly, if we understand the division here properly, and the way we do that is through a biblical worldview, Right? By reading our, our Bibles, by studying our Bibles, by listening to good preaching from the Bible, then we can lead a godly life because we are living as God has designed us to live, not because of our power, not because of anything that we are doing to make ourselves better, because we are following God's plan. Okay. There's a fourth precept we want to look at. Fourth benefit of the doctrine of unconditional election. And this is one that I think people that aren't familiar with this doctrine would just just kind of flabbergast them. Unconditional election encourages our evangelism. In many outside of Reformed churches think that Calvinistic theology is really Um, evangelism is the antithesis of that, right? That it goes against it. Because if God has chosen his elect from before the creation of the world, then what's the point in spreading the gospel? That those who are elect will come to faith in Christ somehow, and we don't have to do anything. Well, if this is what a person thinks, then they do not understand election, They're often supposing, I think, the opposite. 
Because God tells us They suppose, let me restate that, that if God is going to save certain individuals, then he will save them, as I said. And there's no point in our having anything to do with it. But election does not exclude the use of means by which God works. God chooses the means by which he works. We don't. Thankfully, we don't. Because otherwise we would very easily misinterpret the doctrine of unconditional election as, I just coast now. I don't have to do anything. God's taking care of everything. Ignores, this, this thinking ignores the proclamation of the gospel as one of those means by which God works. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Or I'm going to read it so you can follow along if you, if you don't have time to turn there. But this is 1 Corinthians 1, 21. And here, Paul, of course, is writing to the church in Corinth. Now, Corinth is, as you, as you probably know, is a very, very important Greek city. It's the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. Um, it's on the peninsula between the Peloponnese and mainland Greece. Everybody passes through Corinth. It's a center of, tr- of trade for the, uh, the Greco-Roman world. It's a center of banking, and it's a center of cultic worship. There's all sorts of bizarre cult temples and everything that goes with that in Corinth. And Paul says, he writes to the Corinthians, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So what Paul is showing here is that there's two pathways mapped out where people place their trust. The unregenerate are placing their trust in worldly Wisdom, Sophias in the Greek. This is one of the highest Greek ideals. This would resonate very much with these people in Corinth. They know how important wisdom is. However, the believer places his trust in the foolishness of preaching. Sunday after Sunday. And even on weeknights, believers listen to the preaching of the gospel and receive instruction from Scripture. And preaching is not only the delivery of the sermon, but also the content of the message. And believers accept that divine content in faith, and unbelievers reject wisdom, calling it foolishness. They reject God's wisdom. They want earthly wisdom. This, this foolishness, the, the, the folly of what we preach, Paul says, this, this word, this Greek word, moros, comes, it's where we get our word moron, right? And in, 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 in Paul's writing, when he talks about this folly, it's, it's the Christ crucified idea that's a, a stumbling block to the Jews 
and, a fo and folly to the Greeks. It's foolishness. Only morons believe it, to put it in the ancient Greek vernacular. But it's how God has decided he will work. And it's only the truth of election that gives us any hope of success as we proclaim the gospel to the unsaved. If the heart of the sinner is opposed to God as the Bible declares it to be, and God does not elect people to salvation, then what hope of success could we possibly have in witnessing the gospel to others if God has not elected anyone, if it's just up to us? If God does not call sinners to Christ effectively, if his decision is not you know, made before time and will undoubtedly come to pass, if it's not effective, then it is certain that we cannot be effective either in our witnessing of the gospel, right? If God's not effective, how could a fallen mortal be effective? If the effective agent in God's choice and call, if the choice is up to the individual or to us because of our powers to persuade others to accept Christ, then could we even dare to witness to someone? And I think we get this in our thinking, and that's why so many Christians are reluctant and even fearful to share the gospel with others, because they're assuming on themselves a responsibility that Scripture plainly tells us is not ours. What if we make a mistake? What if we give a wrong answer? What if we come across as insensitive or offensive or, heaven forbid, nowadays, intolerant? My goodness. What if that person fails to believe because of our shortcomings? You've probably heard people talk about certain, they talk about Christians like, so-and-so, they're a real Christian, or they're a big Christian. And what does that mean, that some of us aren't real Christians, some of us are little Christians? I don't know what that means, but you see how people are judging this faith. They're judging our Savior based on another fallen human being, which is completely wrong. You know, this, but, but that's our human nature. We're looking at human beings. We're not looking at the Creator. What if that person we're witnessing to eventually goes to hell? Then their eternal destiny is partially, at least partially, our fault. What then about the blame and guilt for inept witnessing resulting in a person being eternally lost? How do we deal with that? And I've heard preachers use this argument, and I'm sure many of you have too. Not Reformed preachers. Arminian preachers, then the condemned sinner, if this was the case, which, thank the Lord, it is not, then the condemned sinner could rightfully turn to us as, he, as he's being dragged away in rage from God's bar of justice and blame us for his condemnation, pointing a finger of accusation at us as he's dragged off. It's your fault. It's your fault. That was a lousy Lousy witnessing you gave to me. And I didn't understand it. You didn't make it clear. So the sinner then, in this 
concept escapes all responsibility. The responsibility is shifted to you and me. It's transferred to us. These are the killer bees. Talked about them before. Don't be trapped by the killer bees. The idea that you should be more, <laughs> or you should be like, yada, 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 or be better. <laughs> it's not dependent on us. This is just going to crush you if you get these ideas in your head. This idea requires us to be perfect ourselves, right? So then Christ's atonement for our sins falls short because we're not perfect. And we also would have to be condemned for lacking perfection. Who then could stand as God's elect? You see that this is just a house of cards that's been built up and it's a guilt trip. And the atheists, the radical atheists today are very, very good at building guilt trips for the faithful and luring you in, and then having this house collapse on you. On the other hand, if God has elected some to salvation, if the doctrine of unconditional election is true, as the Bible tells us it is, and as I believe, and he is calling those elected individuals to Christ, then we can go forth boldly, knowing our witness does not have to be perfect that God uses even weak and stuttering testimonies to his grace. And best of all, that whom God has chosen for salvation will undoubtedly, no question about it, will be saved. We then can be fearless, can't we? There's no fear involved in this, knowing that all who are called by God will come to him. And whatever little stumbling effort God allows us to play in bringing a precious human soul to salvation. We can play that part. We can fulfill that role without fear, without worry. Okay, we're going to wrap up. Um, Next week, we have the last lesson. We're going to look at something that is a bit difficult. Um, and it may be new. It's, it's, it's an interesting idea that I just want to present. It'll wrap up our, the doctrine of unconditional grace. And that's the order of the doctrines. So hopefully I'll see you next week for that. Let's close in prayer. We'll have a short break before the 11 a.m. preaching. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your doctrine of unconditional election. Father, we give thanks for the part you've allowed us to play in it. It's wonderful how you've designed this, Father. We just pray that the Holy Spirit be with us, that we be faithful to this, that we understand it, that it remove all worry and doubt from us when we are sharing our faith with others, Lord, that we may be effective witnesses, that we may reflect the love of Christ to all. Father, continue to bless 
this morning's service as we go to the 11 a.m. that we may glorify you continually. In Jesus' name we pray.